Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. All right, so I know that you guys probably have been waiting with anticipation for this entire month for this message on how to be rich. And I would like to clarify, it's not how to get rich, it's how to be rich. Please don't walk out now. Okay, so here's the thing. It's not what you have. It's what you do with what you have. So as we go through this morning, I'm going to suggest that everyone in this room already is rich. We just need to figure out how to act that out, how to live that out. How can we be rich? And to do that, we're going to go through these three things. We're going to start with the perspective problem. And then we're going to go into the effects of affluenza. Not influenza, but affluenza. Because if we're already rich, then that means we're experiencing the effects of affluenza. And then we're going to talk about the prescription to deal with that. All right? Is everyone on board? All right. The perspective problem. Here's a quote. You can never be too thin or too rich. Interesting, right? So if you really think about this, that's kind of true. Everyone has something they're always trying to attain to. There's always someone richer than you, and there's always someone thinner than you. The thin might relate more to women than to men, I don't know. More buff than you? Anyways. <laughs> um, and this is, this is kind of an interesting thing to think about. So I'd like to talk about back in the 1800s, when anorexia first showed up. Someone first discovered anorexia. And it was in the 1800s, and that's because pre the Industrial Revolution, having a little bit of extra around the middle was actually a sign of affluence and was considered very attractive. So the paradigm before the 1800s was that no one really wanted to be thin. Being thin was actually not positive. And if you look at art from way back when, you'll see that reflected. And so... Anorexia developed when people shifted their perspective on what attractiveness was. And the other thing that happened, and I don't know who invented this, but the corset came into being. And I don't, I don't know, this seems like a horrible invention in my world. I'm so glad we don't have corsets today. But something that would happen is that women, you know, had this ideal they were trying to attain, right? And so they would tie their corsets really tightly, and they would tie every... every day, they'd probably, you know, a little bit tighter, a little bit tighter. And it got to the point that there were many, many women who permanently had fluid in their lungs because they couldn't breathe deeply enough because their corsets were too tight enough, were too tight. So they're actually causing physical harm to themselves because they're trying to attain a certain look by tying their corsets too tight. I'd like to say that they needed to get a little perspective right? That seems crazy. Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you cause yourself physical harm to attain this thing? And it was because this, um, this ideal had become so crystallized. It was such a specific thing that they were trying to achieve that they would do anything to get there. And that's also why anorexia first popped up. So I'd like to say that we do that with Money as well, right? Can't be too thin, you can't be too rich. So we have the same thing that happens with money. And so sometimes we need to step back and gain some perspective when we think about money. Anyone have an idea of what this is a picture of? (laughs) 
Taco Bell? <laughs> okay, that, that was a guess. Any, any other guesses? <laughs> okay, well, if we step back, it's a rooster. Okay, so it's a rooster. We step back a little bit more. Wait, it's actually some people looking at a rooster. Step back a little more. It's actually some, someone looking at, some kids looking at a rooster. See how the perspective changes each time? Oh, it's maybe someone in a plane. Yeah, could be someone in a plane looking at some kids looking at a rooster. Wait, no. No, it's actually a girl playing with a toy set with a little tiny toy rooster. So you see how, like, when your focus was so much on that one little part, it was the, you couldn't see anything else. There was no perspective. And as you back out, you gain more perspective, and you can see the full picture, right? So what I'd like to suggest is that the person who has the best perspective is God. I don't, I don't know if you're going to buy that, but... Not only does he have the perspective of seeing the whole world, he also has the perspective of being able to see the entire time span, which is crazy, right? Like, we, I can't understand that, but it's true. And so when we're thinking about our finances, one thing that is really important to do is ask for God's perspective, right? God's, what's, what is your perspective on what's going on right now? Because his perspective is much more accurate than yours is. So let's think about this in some specific details. Can someone finish the sentence? If you make, if your household makes $37,000 a year, then what would you think? That's a little bit below the median U.S. income. Does anyone have any guesses of what might be an appropriate finish to that? The truth is, if you make, if your household makes $37,000 a year, then you are in the top 4% of earners globally top 4%. You know, if I got in the top 4% in anything, I'd be pretty excited, <laughs> right? That's an A. We like A's. So this isn't to make you feel bad. This is just to change your perspective, right? And I know, I know that people have legitimate problems in their finances, and I'm not making light of that. What I'm trying to say is, let's try to get God's perspective on what's happening in our finances, you know, the five-day work week is also kind of a new, a new thing. It used to be that you had to work seven days to live for seven days, and now we have a five-day work week. You know, I'd like a four-day work week or a three-day work week. That sounds better. But really, the fact that I can work five days and make enough money to sustain life for seven is a very new phenomenon. And in fact, in a lot of our households, one person is doing that to sustain a household of four or five that doesn't happen in a lot of places in the world. But that happens here. We actually live in one of the richest nations and the richest time in history. So what's kind of interesting here is that lots of us have a mental filter, and we all do this. I'm not picking on anyone. I do this. This is just one of the ways we kind of deal with the world. So we have these assumptions that we make. We have these truths we believe. And the example up here, it says, I'm stupid. So someone has that belief about themselves. What they're going to do is selectively pay attention to anything that happens in their life that affirms that belief. And anything that comes into their life that stands in opposition to that belief, they're going to ignore. That's just how we do it. 
I don't know why, but that's our mental filter. So in this case, the six facts up there are all absolutely the truth. They're all absolutely the truth about this person, and yet they choose to only listen to those top three. I failed my exams, I'm dyslexic, my teacher said I never amount to anything, and I lost my temper and shouted at my children. It's the only thing they pay attention to. They don't pay attention to, oh, look, I've successfully run my business for 23 years. I won the pub quiz with my friends, and my hobby is photography, and I've exhibited pictures in the national event. So they just kind of filter this. They accept the things that line up with their core belief, and they reject the things that stand in opposition to their core belief, even though all those things are equally true. And what I'd like to suggest is that we do that with money. We maybe approach with, you know, I'm poor, I don't have enough, or we have this kind of belief, and then we pay attention to, you know, I don't have the latest iPhone, I don't have the coolest SUV, you know, I don't have 27 pairs of shoes, right? But you don't pay attention to, often there's food in the house and you still choose to go out to eat. That doesn't happen lots of places in the world, you know? I've been lots of places in the world where people have, you know, like two or three outfits. That's it. So it's just a perspective, you know? It's just like paying attention to everything, not selectively filtering. So here's a video to kind of uh, illustrate this point on first world problems. Maybe. Technical difficulty, sorry. What's up guys, hope you're doing well. So today we'll be talking about first world problems. More specifically, a top 100 list. Now for those of you who don't know what first world problems are, just watch the video. They're problems typically experienced by people living in industrialized and wealthy countries. No gramos juegos? Don't be the alley. Top 100 first world problems. Can't find the remote. Uh-huh. Twitter's over capacity. Ran out of toilet paper. You have nothing to eat at your house. Your neighbor blocked their Wi-Fi. Ran out of milk. Really? Your hot water takes a while to get hot. You don't have an automatic toothbrush. You don't want to eat left You don't have anything to eat. Too many commercials on TV. Twilight Movie, Nicki Minaj, Justin Bieber, Teen Mom. You cut yourself shaving. Instagram is off the iPhone. The barber matches your head up. You were forced to get Facebook timeline. Your boss reports to dad you on Facebook. People don't follow you on Twitter. Annoying group text. The DVR reports the wrong show. Toddlers and TR. Childhood obesity. No one likes to report my picture. Back cell phone reset. Yeah, yeah, so. Hello? Too many Facebook event fights. You have to use two remote controls. You have an annoying alarm clock. You don't own a Mac. You forgot to turn your phone on silent before you went to sleep. Long one wake you up. You can't hear the TV or the vacuum cleaner. You don't know how to work a Mac. You left your cell phone at home. You can't find your chapstick. You have to pay a transaction fee. They right. only accept no, cash. No, we don't have to make a break. They only accept credit. Sorry. You can't tell how much gas costs. Good stuff, Wayne. Commitment. No. Don't share Coca-Cola products. Snooky. The situation. Sarah Palin. Justin Bieber. New Gingrich. Tip one is an archaeologist. Top of all is Trent. Ray and the chicken. So like the flatbread? Yeah. No, you don't carry the flatbread anymore. Dang. You want a tech, but you keep getting green lights. The car is no margin anywhere. You guys are my folk. They always serve Pepsi products. You pay $5 for coffee, and it takes back. Elevator is broken. Person is taking too long in the bathroom. Taco Bell you got delivered. Deliver? You left your hand by the top. You spent more than $5 for a sub at Subway. You forgot to put deodorant on. You bought the wrong type of bag. Wrong food. I wanted the chicken nugget. Your mom requested to be your friend on Facebook. 
it mean to be rich? Rich is a moving target. No matter how much money we have or make, we'll probably never consider ourselves rich. And they actually have done studies where they've asked people, what would it mean for you to be rich? Like, how much money would you have to be make for you to consider yourself rich? And what they found was that pretty much everyone just doubled their current income. That was the answer. So if someone made 30000 they would say 60000 If they made 60000 they would say 120000 They made 120000 they'd say 240000 You'd think, surely there's an upper limit on this, right? Like, surely, like those millionaires, billionaires, nope. They make $2 million, they say $4 million. They make $10 million, they say $20 million. Rich is a moving target. You will never automatically consider yourself rich. And I, I was thinking about this, like, how could this possibly be true? And this is what I, I think could be an answer. I think that when people think about being rich, it means in their mind, I never have to think about money. I could just do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, and never consider money. I think that's how people think about being rich. And you know, if you read the Bible closely, God never suggests that that's an appropriate relationship with money. It always says that we're supposed to be good stewards, that we're supposed to manage what we have. So I think this, this construct of being rich is something that we've completely invented. We've invented this thing that doesn't even exist. Think about that for a minute. But if I had more money, then, then I could be more generous and then I'd be rich, right? Well, studies have also shown that as people make more money, the percent of money they give away is less. So if someone makes a median household income in the U.S., they give away about 6% of their income. If you more, double that, so if they make 200000 a year, they tend to give 4% of their income. Now, the amount obviously has gone up, but the percentage has decreased. And truthfully, if you can afford to give 6%, 10%, whatever, at a median household income, you absolutely should be able to give that when you've quadrupled that number, right? So this is just something that, frankly, we're really bad at. As a human, we are really bad at being rich. So here's this quote, this is from Andy Stanley, until you relax into the reality that you are rich, you will never become intentional about getting good at it. And so that's what this morning is kind of about. It's about 
saying, you know what, actually all of us in this room are rich. Let's accept that and let's be intentional about it. Let's be intentional about being good at being rich. Does that seem fair? Okay, so now that you know that um, you're in the top probably 4% of wage earners in the world, you didn't know that you were being affected by affluenza. <coughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so what are the effects of affluenza? Well, I'm going to give you Old Testament and New Testament so you know it's biblical. <laughs> Proverbs 38-9 to says, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? And in 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul writes, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So one of the effects of affluenza is that we can easily migrate our hope from trusting in God to trusting in our money. It's pretty easy to do. So you can read this warning up here, right? It's like, Instead of a cigarette box or alcohol or something, here's an affluenza warning. May cause arrogance. While taking this medicine, extreme precaution should be taken not to offend people. If taken for prolonged periods, may impair perception, causing hope to migrate. This has probably happened. So then, what can we do about it? Well, Paul continues to write, command them to do good. This is for the rich people. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So the antidote to the effects of affluenza is generosity. It's pretty cool. So what's the prescription? Okay, so perspective, said we're rich. We have affluenza. Those are the effects. What's the prescription? The biblical prescription for affluenza. Three Ps. Thank you, Pastor Cameron. Okay. Priority giving, percentage giving, and progressive giving. Okay? Priority giving. Now, how many of you have noticed this? Because I notice this every week. My work, my place of employment, says that I make a certain amount of money. It says that, but my check is never that much. Never. Never once have I gotten all that money. Because there's this thing called taxes. Right. The government knows we're pretty bad about prioritizing giving money. So they just kind of take their chunk ahead of time. Have you ever noticed that? Am I the only one that that happens to? And so what I'm going to suggest is just as the government does that, you know, in our budget, we should just do that. And so here's a very, very practical tip. Not telling you it's the way to do it, but it's the way I do it. When I write down my income in my checkbook, you know, because I actually balance a checkbook. When I write down my income, I actually write it less my tithe amount. So then I never had that money. That money was that money is spent. That money is spent just like my tax money is already taken away. My tithe money is already taken away before I can write my budget. It's pretty easy actually. Once you start doing that, I don't even notice it. Just, there we go. Priority giving. And this, again, helps you to hope in God, not in your riches. Right? Not, not ever depending on that money, because I'm trusting in God instead. Does that make sense? So that's priority giving. Percentage giving. 
So you know that story about the widow where she gives her two mites in the offering, which is really very, very little amount of money? And Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And this is the idea, again, that it's the percent you give. It's the percentage of your total that you're giving, not the actual amount. So that's where you should focus. You should focus on your percent, not on the amount you actually write on the check, but the percent out of your total. Does that make sense? So the tithe, when God set this up, pretty cool. He actually said you give a tithe, and that's a percentage, 10%. It's right there in the Bible. Focus on the percent, not the amount. So priority giving, percentage giving. Remember, this is the antidote, the prescription for affluenza. And then... Progressive giving. So the idea is that over time you want to raise that percentage. So you know how you hear about all these bacterial resistant strains or whatever. They get kind of nasty and then you have to go to the hospital and get an IV and all that. Okay, so this helps you not have to do that from affluenza. Do you get the thing there? (laughs) Kind of a stretch. Okay. Anyways... (laughs) It's the idea that, you know what, your life doesn't stay stagnant. It's always changing. It's progressive. And your giving should mimic that. It should also be progressive. And maybe that means you increase by a quarter of a percent. But that's amazing. That's amazing if you do that. So if you are doing priority giving, percentage giving, and progressive giving, this is like a biblical guarantee against migrating your hope into riches. That's pretty awesome. Okay, now here's the booster. This is like the multivitamin. You can get this over the counter. Be aware of the awareness problem. So let's start with the second one. Really, with chips and hummus, is there ever enough? Now, I don't know if you like chips and hummus, but I realized over the past few months that apparently I have an insatiable appetite for chips and hummus. So we'll sit and watch TV, and Graham will bring up the chips and hummus, and I'll be like, yeah. I'm good, I don't need any. And then, I'll, you know, he's crunching away, and I'm like, oh, those sound kind of good. So, I'll, you know, I'll, I have one. Nope. I have a couple more. Pretty soon, I've eaten quite a lot, and it feels like I haven't eaten anything at all, right? I could eat that whole bag and probably want a whole nother bag. What is that? How does that happen? That is our appetite, the appetite for more. So, you know, the appetite was created by the Lord, And when he created it, it was perfect. And then there was the fall. And guess what? It got distorted by sin, just like everything else in this world. How exciting. So the appetite for more causes three things to happen in us mentally. First of all, we have an impact bias. And what that bias says is when an appetite is stimulated, the brain magnifies it out of proportion to our other appetites. So we overestimate how happy we're going to be if we get to have that thing. So a really good example to that is when they bring that dessert tray out at the restaurant. Right? Like you had a nice meal, you're full, you think you're good, and then they show you that dessert tray and you're like, that raspberry cheesecake looks amazing. Clearly I have to have that. And if I don't have that, my entire meal is ruined. And I, it just, it just, if I don't have that cheesecake, it's going to just eliminate everything we just did here. So 
I have to have that, right? And so you kind of do this in your mind, right? You start to focus on it. You get really in there. and I need to have that thing. And then you get the cheesecake, and then you eat like three bites, and you're like, actually, I'm really full, and I didn't want this at all. And what happened? <laughs> Appetite for more. So impact bias, focus. The mind becomes so focused on one thing that everything else kind of blurs around it. So think about that, the rooster comb we started with. That wasn't the picture at all. But that's, that's you know, what happens when you start having an appetite for something. You zero in on it. And you also exaggerate the consequences. If I don't get this, I'm going to die. Right? And you know we do this. And you, and you know when you say that, you don't really mean it. But it's that sense of there's just so much that you want there. So that's what happens with our appetite. And that's part of our awareness problem. Once we become aware that we don't have something, we suddenly kind of want that thing, right? Does that make sense? Maybe I'm the only person that happens to. The antidote for this is contentment, which we can find in 1 Timothy 6.6, which says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And later Paul writes that discontentment leads to ruin. So contentment is more valuable than the things you acquired because of discontentment. Sometimes it's hard to believe that when you're in the moment, right? When you're in the moment and that thing is right there, that thing is going to change your life. It won't. But it feels like that. That's what it feels like, right? So what can we do instead? Well, I'd like to suggest we need to cultivate awareness of the things that really matter. And there's two ways to do this. There's two sides of this coin. The first is increase your awareness of what other people need. You know, we sang about that this morning in one of the worship songs about open my eyes to see the things that make your heart cry. We're talking to God. That's, that's increasing your awareness of, of things that are happening in the world, right, that are pretty important. I work in the food industry, and um, I was reading this article the other day, and it was actually about new pet treats, like new things you can buy for your dogs and cats. And one of the things that they highlighted in there was a meowgarita. A margarita for a cat. There's probably no alcohol in it, but a meowgarita. And okay, like that's clever marketing and, and whatever. And, and I love my dog and I spoil him. And so, okay, there's that part. But then there's this whole part of me that's like, seriously, like loads of people die every day because they don't have clean water. And you're going to buy your cat a meowgarita? <laughs> like, it just seems like there's just the, the discrepancy there is huge. You know what I'm saying? So again, it's not about saying you can't buy your cat meowgarita. Absolutely, you can if you want to. But I'm just saying recognize that that's a privilege, right? Like, we live in a pretty crazy country that we can do that, that that's even an option. And be grateful for that. That's the response. The other thing we can do, so increase your awareness of things that matter, but also disconnect from your awareness pipelines, right? So if you go to the home show every year to get ideas for your home, but what happens is you come home and now you hate the house you live in and you just see all the flaws in it, don't go to the home show, <laughs> right? Like, just be nice to yourself. <laughs> Set yourself up for success in this area. Don't go to the mall every weekend if all it does is make you realize you don't have the latest and greatest 
dark wash boot cut jean from some store. I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying though? Like as soon as you recognize you don't have something, then you focus on it. Just don't realize you don't have it. <laughs> so cut off your awareness pipeline. So just ask yourself, what things do I do that actually lead to greater discontentment in my life? And modify those. Does that make sense? So there's this idea here that you're going to miss money that you misspend, you'll miss money that you invest poorly, and you'll miss money that you waste. But you never miss money given to meet a need in someone else's life. Isn't that amazing? Generosity. All right, so the recap. The antidote for affluenza is generosity. And we talked about priority giving, percentage giving, and progressive giving. We also talked about how wealth has negative side effects. But giving away your wealth actually has positive side effects. And I just want to leave you with this thought here. Paul commanded us to be generous, not because he wanted our money. You think about it, Paul was a tent maker. He actually had his own business, right? He didn't live on other people's support in the Bible. He didn't command us to be generous because he wanted our money, but because he didn't want our money to have us. So how can you be rich? It's this, you control your money. It's, you're in control of it, it doesn't control you. And the best way to do that is to be generous with it, to give, to find things that matter, and to not obsess about the latest iPhone or, you know, the latest thing you don't have. But to back out and say, God, what's your perspective? What's your perspective on my life and what I have? And teach me to be thankful for it, right? It's not bad that we have these things. It, the point is just be grateful for the things you have. Does that make sense? So, Paul commanded us to be generous, not because he wanted our money, but because he didn't want our money to have us. Thank you. Awesome. So, we're going to take a minute to respond to the message. Thank you, Jill. That was excellent. Um, and I think a good way to respond would be, let's just all pray and listen for a second and ask God to give us, you know, maybe one or two or three things that we can go do. You know, maybe he will highlight for you something to be thankful for in your life. Maybe he will highlight a, a way to be generous, you know, or um, a, a pipeline to disconnect from, you know, that's kind of feeding discontent in your life. Um, but just bow your heads, take a posture of prayer. And God, we come to you together right now just to ask you, what do you want us to do with what we just learned? Show us um, something practical you want us to go do, and we're going to go do it. All right. I hope you heard something that you can take with you and do. Um, I think, to me, that was what was highlighted as the best way to respond to that, is let's, let's do something with it. You know, let's go... Do something practical, be thankful for something specific in our life, or be generous in a particular way.